You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. So this is the first of five weeks of us looking at the book of Esther. You might be wondering why um, we've chosen Esther to work through as a story over the summer. Well, I suggest there's a number of really interesting reasons and uh, a number of levels which I'll share with you. But in order to get there, let me give you a little bit more background as to where the story of Esther sits in the timeline of the Jewish people. So we need to go back um, to the, the time of the kings. So King David, King Saul, King Solomon. It was a time in Israel's history where it was the glory days, the days where they had their own land, they had a king, they had wealth. They worshipped God at the temple. It was the height of their um, history as a people. Go another few hundred years later, and I'm afraid the story hasn't continued in the manner maybe which they wanted. There's idol worship that's creeped into their culture. The surrounding nations are influencing them in ways which um, just are ungodly. And God gets to a point where his people are so far from him, he takes the, I guess, ultimate decision to remove his people from the land that he promised. And in comes the Babylonian Empire, and they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and they take the people, many of them, and they take them back to their homeland. And the people are dispersed. No longer do they have a land that they say is theirs, that God has given to them. No longer can they worship God at the temple, but they are a people under captivity. And the Babylonian king, you can read about it. There's like kings like Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Daniel, books of Daniel talk about that kind of time. Just like today, the superpowers of that day do not stand for eternity. They stand for a a hundred years or so, and another one comes along. And that's exactly what happened in that day. And a nation of Persia rose up, and they conquered the Babylonians, and they were far more um, free in terms of their um, religious freedom. And they encouraged the Jewish people to reestablish their um, nationality, to move back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and the temple. We read that in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. And it was a new day. And this is the time at which Esther suddenly appears on the scene. All this takes place in a city called Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire at the time. It's an amazing city. It would be both the political, financial capital of the world at that point in time. And you know what? There's not too many differences between Susa and London. And that's one of the first reasons we want to say Esther's a great book for us to work through as a church. We live in a city where both um, there's uh, political clout, there's financial clout, there's influence beyond not just this city to the nation, but to the nations of the world. It's a very similar situation to what we're speaking into or looking at the story of in Susa at the time. So let's dive in to Esther's story. So this is happening roughly about 400 years after um, King David was on the throne, just to give you a sense of where this is happening in history. So how do we relate to London as a people who don't control the city? 
just like Esther's people, the Jewish people of the time, were in Susa, the city. They did not rule the city. The Persian Empire ruled the city. The rules around morality and uh, politics and um, other things would be very different to their own moral standards, maybe the, th- the laws that God had put into the people. They had to learn to live in that culture, to have a position towards the city, which um, was different to a time where they were ruling and reigning in the land that God had given them. I would suggest we're in a similar position as Christians living here in London. Our city is not ruled in a way which reflects God's laws completely. Yes, if you look at history, um, there's, there's some great moral values that were built into our country that came out of the Bible and Jesus' teaching. But today, we are a secular country. We're a secular society. We have religious freedom, just like the Persian Empire enc- encouraged. But we've got to learn to have a relationship with our culture and our society which we can draw some lessons out from the story of Esther. I guess on the one hand, we could um, withdraw into our Christian bubble and we can just all hang out with one another, we can live together, we can ha- just be friends together and we can almost ignore what's going on in the city. That could be one posture that we adopt. Another one could be we, we just criticize what's going on in society and we uh, climb up on our Christian high horse and... Um, critique what's going on in society. We're very good at that one, but perhaps not the best posture to adopt. Another way could be to bless the city and the culture and to find ways to be the very best citizens of this city, to be the very best citizens of this nation, and to work for the common good of all people, but without losing our identity as Christians. And I would suggest that is the very best posture that we can adopt to our uh, nation and our city. And it's one that we can see the story of Esther showing us how to do it. So as we work through it, that's uh, one of our reasons. Um, London is a lot like Susa, and we think this is a great story to look to. Second reason. This story is of a woman rising quickly within a culture that's dominated by a male culture. Now, I've got your interest. That's interesting, isn't it? See any similarities again with what's going on in the UK and the world? We've now got a female prime minister. We may have a, uh, an American uh, female president. Um, you could say the most powerful woman in Europe or leader in Europe is Angela Merkel. It's got some similarities there as well. It's also something that's the church we haven't been great on. So... It's good to look at the story of Esther and see a leader rising within society who isn't a man. The third one is an insight into how God works where there's an ambiguity around spiritual morality. You know what? Life isn't always black and white. I know if you've noticed. We have to make decisions on things in imperfect situations with imperfect people. And the story of Esther is littered with those type of decisions. Esther herself has to make some big calls where it's not black and white. And so we can draw out some principles and some lessons from the story of Esther to help us in making our decisions about how we live our lives. So let me tell you the first part of the story. King Xerxes, the great and powerful 
king of the Persian Empire, decides to hold a banquet for all of his male associates. Those who've seen the film 300 will recognize this dude when he comes on the screen. This is King Xerxes himself, um, characterized in that film. Um, I'm not sure he looked exactly like that, but that's Hollywood's impression of King Xerxes. But you see, he is, at this point in time, the most powerful man on the planet. It said his army had a million soldiers in it. Some historians say that's slightly exaggerated, but he had a lot and a lot of money and a lot of power. And this man held a banquet to show off his wealth to his friends and to those that he'd conquered and were winning to go to battle with him. And at this banquet, he got drunk and he starts to brag about the great beauty of his queen. And that bragging at some point turned into him deciding that he was going to summon his wife, the queen, to display her beauty to all these other drunk men who were at this banquet. You can understand um, Queen Vashti's um, hesitation at this request. And you know what? It was an incredible, brave thing for her to say, no, I'm not going to come and um, show myself. Um, Some biblical commentators say that the, the reference to her wearing her crown means she would only wear her crown as she was um, paraded in front of the men. So it's not hard to understand why she had reservations on that. However, this was a really big deal for the culture of the day. There was a, a cabinet meeting that was called, How Dare the Queen Disobey the Command of the King? And they decided to strip her of her title and to banish her. And as harsh as that is, and as hard for us to understand, we don't take everything in the Bible as an example, as instruction for how we're meant to conduct ourselves here today. This is not an instruction for how we're meant to behave. It's just a story showing the culture of the day. So, the king is without a queen. The current queen has been banished, stripped of her title. And the king decides, you know what, I need a new queen. I need someone to, to, to show the beauty to my kingdom that I can, I can hold and, 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 and uh, raise up. So he sends out representatives to every corner of his empire on a, on a giant beauty um, pageant um, trying to find the most beautiful women in the kingdom. And then they would bring them back to Susa and they would um, train for a year before they would be presented to the king. They reckon there was about a thousand women that they uh, brought to Susa in that year following the queen. So we pick up the story here in Esther chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Morkadai, and the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, and a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem, among the captives carried away from Genachiah, king of Judah, from uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadessah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Morkadai took her as his own daughter, 
So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with the cosmetics her, and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Morkadai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Morkadai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each woman to go into King Xerxes um, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go up, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again until, or unless, the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Morkadai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Teba, in the seventh year of his reign, the king beloved or loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that when he set the royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti, then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces that gave gifts with royal generosity. So the way it worked was like this. The king's representatives went out and find the most beautiful women. They brought them to Susa. They would then go into a year's training where they would be um, bathed in oil and myrrh and spices, but also taught the ways of the royal household. All in the hope that their one night with the king, the king would choose them. It's like the ultimate, guess, X Factor or beauty idol. Everything hinged on that one moment. The rest of their life would be changed by the decision of the king on that night. You know, the first thing that could happen was the king looked at them and decided he didn't want to call them again. It was it. It was one night. They would return back to the harem and they would be there for the rest of their lives. They wouldn't be allowed to leave or marry or or move on with their life. They would be permanently widowed, living within the harem. The second thing that could happen is the king um, liked them, and he would remember their name. And maybe at some point in the future, he would call them again 
and they would come and spend more time with him at some point. The third thing that could happen is the king really liked them. And he'd make a decision maybe to make them one of his two or three wives that he would marry. Their children would um, have royal privileges. They would be raised within the royal household. And although they wouldn't carry the title of queen, it would be a very privileged position indeed. And then finally, the one which they were all hoping for. He would love them more than any other and decide for them to become his one queen. And we see in the story that that's the situation that Esther finds herself. A little orphan girl, a little Jewish orphan girl, suddenly finds herself as one of the most powerful leaders in the world. So she went through all the beauty treatments. She went through a year's training to get to that moment and that point at which the king chose her as queen. That's the story so far. I think you agree, it's a pretty incredible story already, yet there's so much more to come. You see, the story of Esther is written in such a way that the writer's trying to tease out some certain things. It's using literary devices to provoke us. One of the, um, the main things, theme, that runs right through the book of Esther is that God is working in very ordinary ways. In fact, the name of God isn't mentioned at all in the book of Esther. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of dreams or visions or any kind of miracle. It's a very ordinary story. There's even points at which it would have been easier for the writer to use um, religious language, but they deliberately choose not to. They've deliberately omitted the name of God, the purpose of God, the mention of God from this book, yet it's in the Bible. Why is that? Well, I would suggest it was deliberate. This isn't the first time that God's people faced... um, A problem. We'll see later in the story that there's actually plots going on to wipe out the people of Israel completely. And Esther is instrumental in preventing that from happening. Yet, when God's people previously had faced destruction, God turns up in a very obvious and powerful way. Think of the story of Moses and then being captive in um, Egypt. He turns up with a burning bush to speak to Moses and then there's ten plagues to really shake that nation and get their notice. He parts the Red Sea. There's miracle after miracle after miracle. Yet in this story, God isn't even mentioned and there is no miracle of that level which appears. Why? Why is God seemingly totally silent in this book? I would suggest that real life is a lot more like the story of Esther than it is the story of Moses. We can pray and hope for a burning bush moment, but they very rarely come. In fact, I've never met someone that's seen uh, God speak to them from a burning bush. If you're here today, I'd love to speak to you at the end of the meeting. God seems to 
speak in far more subtle ways than that. There's a whole string of coincidences that happen that result in the saving of the Jewish nation. One by one by one. Just tiny little things. Let's just take one as an example. The king getting drunk at the banquet. If that hadn't have happened, then he wouldn't have called on Vashti, who wouldn't have not appeared in front of the banquet, which means she wouldn't have been removed as queen, which means Esther would never have become queen, which means Esther would never have been in position when it came to the moment to save the Jewish people. Now you could say they're all just coincidences that happen. Yet, behind the scenes, we see actually God at work, moving the pieces around the board. And he can even use a drunk king to bring about his purposes. That's how sovereign he is. And that's why we do look at the world right now. We're confused at what's going on. Yet we do have a king that silently works behind the scene, bringing about his purposes. And I know that's really difficult to get. And I don't get it all. But I do know that God is sovereign. And in this story, we see him working behind the scenes, even without name, bringing about salvation to the people of Israel. The Jews weren't wiped out in the end. It wasn't a coincidence. And we'll see more about that story in the coming weeks. I wonder, are you seeking God's will for your life? Are you saying to him, only if you give me a sign, clearly show up and tell me what you want me to do with my life? Yet the truth is from the book of Esther, we see God is already at work in your life. Where you are right now is exactly where God has led you to be. You don't have to seek God for a burning bush moment. You just have to live life running after him. You don't need a clear miracle to appear to know what your life is for. What you're doing right now is exactly where God has put you. And if you follow him and you follow his leadings, then he will always guide you through life. When God works in ordinary ways, we think he's not there, but actually he is. God's silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not abandonment. The second thing we see is God doesn't care about appearances. But the world does. The king does, that's for sure. King Xerxes is obsessed with appearances. Let me remind you about what's happening in chapters 1 and 2. The king has held this banquet and it says that it was 180 days. The reason it was 180 days was his plan was to have all of his friends there and he would parade his wealth up the middle of the banquet. And until the wealth had finished going up the middle of the banquet, that's all his livestock, all of his possessions, all of the money, it would keep going. 180 days later, the banquet is still going because the wealth is still flowing at the middle of the banquet. The king is completely obsessed with showing off how great he is, his appearance. And the pinnacle moment, in his mind anyway, is where he shows off his queen to the people who would be the most beautiful woman in the land. To show his wealth was to show his power. 
Aren't you glad that we don't live in a society like that these days? Aren't you glad that we don't live in a culture that is obsessed with how we look? Huh. It's, not, it's not quite true, is it? We might not have a banquet that lasts 180 days. But I think we do live in a culture that's obsessed with the way we look. Not just a physical beauty, but a financial beauty, a career beauty, uh, how big's your house, what your car's like, who you hang out with. Yeah, I think, actually there's probably more in this story that we can pull out and similarities with Esther. You see, our 21st century culture hasn't moved on much further than, than this story that we're looking at here. The world is pretty much still the same underneath. The world, in this example, is King Xerxes. Xerxes is demanding that you look a particular way. The world demands that you look a particular way. The color of your skin matters more than the content of your character. We're seeing that in America right now with the Black Lives Matter movement. What you have matters more than who you are. That's King Xerxes. That's the world. That's what the world is saying. And therefore, we have to undergo elaborate beauty treatments in order to fit in with society and culture. Here's a couple of uh, images. Um, David Gandhi there, be familiar, one of the most famous models in the world. Um, these images would be everywhere in London all the time. Buses, billboards, social media. We can't escape it. Here's a second one of a beauty campaign. Extensive beauty treatments available. If there was a strap line for the city of London, that would be it. You can immerse yourself in the beauty treatments of our culture to your heart's desire because they demand that you look and have certain things. The message that you are ultimately worthless is what King Xerxes uh, proclaims. And the world is doing that to us. And those of us that live in cities are more prone to this than anywhere else. And don't be so quick to say, no, that's not me. None of us are immune to this. We are all shaped to some degree by the culture that we live in. We all have to make daily choices about the things we spend money on, the way we look, the way that we build our careers, the way that we build wealth. They're all things that people in this room have to make decisions on. And we are influenced by the culture that's around us. Just like Esther, there's no saying, mm, it's not for me. I can, I can choose another route. She had to follow these beauty treatments. She had no choice. You see, let's just check in with Esther for a minute. We look at Esther, and I really wanted to help like hold up Esther and say, look, Esther's like Jesus. She's a mediator between the people and the kingdom. I'm sure we'll get to that. But chapters 1 and 2, she's not looking good. Uh, I, and I'm not sure you th when you look at her, but either she's a complete wet blanket who can't stand up for herself and just does what her uncle says, does what the 
Uh, the eunuch says, does what the king says. She gives away her virginity like it's nothing. She marries a man who uh, doesn't share her beliefs. She's very willing to just kind of go along with what's going on. She doesn't at this point in the story look like the brave leader that we know by the end of the story she becomes. So has she completely sold out? And what's the message to us? Well, I think if you look at Esther at this point in the story, you would agree that she hasn't done well at this point. And that's the point. That is the point. Because the rest of the story is God taking her by the hand. And despite of the terrible start, taking her on a journey and having faith in her and trust in her and loving her and step by step building character into her, that we will see at some point she stands up to the king risking her life on behalf of her people. I'm really glad that she's not um, amazing at this point in the story because it gives us all hope. It allows us to see a bit of us in her at this point. Yep, to some degree or another, Esther's like us all. And some of us know that we've done a really bad job on this, just like Esther. She got off to a terrible start. But what's awesome is right now she's weak and sold out. But by the end of the story, she's a brave heart, she's bold, and she's fearless. And that's God's message to anyone here in this room, that if you trust in him and you follow his purposes, he can take you from where you are today and he can turn you into a brave heart. No matter what mistakes you've made, no matter how much you've been sold out, you can't write yourself out of God's plan. It's not there's a plan B. You're right in his purposes. See, people who don't understand this and look at the Bible and pick holes in some of these figures don't get what the Bible's about. The Bible is full of characters who are not perfect. I'm so glad. See, the, the Bible is not, you follow the example of these people, then you get to know God. It's actually, you're like these people who fail, who fall short, yet God chooses you anyway. And that means, despite the fact that we're influenced by the world, to some degree... God has not given up on you. There's a, an image, a real powerful image in this story of um, Xerxes choosing Esther to be his bride. And it's not the only image in the Bible of um, someone choosing others to be their bride. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus choosing us to be his bride. And King Xerxes puts all of these extra responsibilities on Esther. You must, for a year, you must um, train and be bathed in oil and spices and be perfect. Yet, the contrast with our king is, I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. They couldn't be any more different. And I'm pretty sure that Esther's in this situation as an example to draw the contrast between the different brides that we could be. Can't help but think of um, parallels with Ephesians 5. 
um, which is these, these verses. Think of husbands as Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Esther was chosen by King Xerxes because she was already beautiful. However, Jesus chooses you, in spite of your flaws, to make you beautiful. Esther had to give up her life and freedom to the king. Jesus is the only king, only spouse, who gives up their life to give you back your freedom. He gives up everything for you, not because you are lovely, but to make you lovely. He was bound. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was betrayed. He was hung on a cross. And as we imagine him there, suddenly we get a picture of beauty, which is far more fabulous than the uh, beauty contest that King Xerxes ran. The Jesus hanging on a cross in all of the ugliness of sin that he's taken on at that point on our behalf is our picture of beauty. And that's what we get. We get a new definition of beauty from this story. You see, in a world where you want to be beautiful, financially beautiful, physically beautiful, whatever, you need to be beautiful in a, world, in a way that the world insists you are to be. And it makes you self-obsessed. You can't walk past a mirror without checking yourself out when the ultimate aim is to improve yourself. This is a, a photo from a recent Dove campaign. You see, the world has a, a counter story to this, which is subtle but as deadly. And Dove are very good at this. I'm not picking on Dove. It's just their campaign as an illustration. I'm sure their products are great. Um, the world says you have to look a particular way. And Dove have got this clever campaign to say, it doesn't matter what you, love, you look like. As long as you're comfortable with yourself, you've got an inner beauty. That's what matters. I've got to say, this is a lie as well. There's not anyone in this room that when God looks inside of you, you're beautiful. The only one who is truly beautiful is the Jesus hanging on a cross, giving himself up for us. And I know you don't want to hear that, but it's the truth. It's not we have to get to a point where we're comfortable with how we look, with how we spend our money, with the things that we do. That's a lie as well. We have to get to a point where we say, it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about our beauty, it's about his beauty. And I'll take that as a free gift. You want to feel beautiful? It's not by convincing yourself that it's okay. It's by looking to the one that is beautiful, Jesus Christ. The second thing is we get to experience this beauty in a brand new way. Jesus deliberately chooses very provocative language here by calling us the bride. I don't know about you, but... I, Maybe it's difficult to imagine yourself as the bride, but I want, just take us there for a second. This is a room which is often used for weddings. 
I want you to imagine you're about to walk in the door as the bride. And Jesus is there standing at the altar. What happens when the bride walks in the room? The groom catches her eye. And he's absolutely captivated with this image of beauty that's walking towards him down the aisle. That's the language that Jesus is choosing to describe how he sees you. Hang on a sec, you're just talking about how we're ugly and, and we, we, you know, truly inside. No, yeah, there's a transformation that takes place. We've heard about it in the worship time, about how God makes us brand new. At the point at which there's a transformation, something happens, and Jesus sees you as the true beauty, the one who captivates him and excites him to such a degree that he uses language to describe it like his wedding day. That is incredible. When you truly understand how Jesus sees you right now as a beautiful, flawless bride, you get the freedom from the world telling you to be a particular way. That's how you throw off the chains. That's how you break free from the the bungee run of cord. It's to understand how Jesus sees you. Not to become comfortable with yourself, but to see yourself through the eyes of Jesus.